This is an ABC podcast. Hello there, welcome to the Securitas Minefield. Lead Ali, my name's Scott Stevens, my co-host, as we try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. Circling back has been the theme of the month. Um, we're going to do it again, Scott, like as I forecast last week. How are you doing? Look, I'm, I'm, I'm doing all right. An awful lot has happened since the last time we visited this topic. It no, kind of makes the topic... back to a lockdown, didn't you? So... Uh, I did. I did. I, I, sorry, have we gone from this is a phrase that you hate to now, this is a phrase that you're going to continue to use, albeit ironically. Is that really what we've yeah, arrived at? They're not at? mutually exclusive positions. <laughs> if you dislike something, and listeners, please just go back to last week. Well, it was absolutely right about the appalling nature of the phrase circle back. You can go back to something. If you circle back to something, you're back where you were at the, in the first instance. I mean, it's just one of those awful forms of decrepit, embrutalized grammar yeah. um so well please just it's don't like even... saying you did a you did a 360 well then you're facing yeah, the direction right. you right. <laughs> already facing the other one by the way is rolled gold roll i just there's so many uh, yeah why why what makes something rolled as opposed to other shaped gold well, yeah, the point uh, the point sure. is that something that's rolled gold is then counterfeit. Oh, is that the, what it, I see? I've never yeah, the idea is just because it has the word gold in it doesn't mean it's like gold standard. Yeah. It means that something that is otherwise worthless has been coated in something that makes it look flashy uh, and valuable. Whereas and rolled so to gold refer to, is used to make it sound like it's proper gold, like this is exactly. as gold. It's yep. also like backflips in politics. If you do a backflip... You still you end up in the same, same position. <laughs> anyway, are we going to start every we, show like this? Yes, yes. The the obligatory opening grumpy five minutes. What it is that we hate in the world. There is actually, by the way, some of my favorite forms of sporting journalism, and I don't enjoy a lot of sporting journalism, but the ones that I like are, and I don't like lists either, like journalistic lists or listicles or anything. I, I just think it's lazy. It's just lazy. But But sometimes really fine observers of modern sport. They haven't got enough to write about a particular player or particular form of offense that, for instance, the Boston Celtics are, you know, experimenting with and failing abysmally at. But nonetheless, they might sort of throw something that's kind of interesting or quirky into a list of five things that caught my attention this week or 10 things that I really like about the modern NBA. Uh, we we could always begin with, you know, five things that we hate about dot, dot, dot. You know? This is effectively admitting Fun. to the ABC that They've given us too long a show. That's what that's doing. <laughs> that's right. um, let's let's circle back to the topic because we we're revisiting the experience of COVID nineteen. We did it, yeah. of course, on what I suppose you could say, broadly speaking, was the anniversary of COVID nineteen mm-hmm. in Australia, the lockdown at least. Um, and then, as you mentioned, as we referred to, in the meantime, Brisbane went back into lockdown. There's a fresh outbreak there, um, and. It's kind of inflected. We were always going to do this particular topic, which mm. is about work and the office um, and the idea of working from home and how much that's changed things and how much it's changed the office, how important the office is, all of those sort of related issues. And then I feel like we were going to have that discussion anyway, but it's been inflected by the fact that a whole city went back into lockdown, um, which kind of reminded us of the contingent nature yeah, of this. Like when we right. were first thinking of doing this, we were actually in a moment of, oh, well, this is all over. I think Melbourne had just announced 100 people in our home was the new limit and all yep. kinds of things. It's amazing how quickly these these sorts of things change. And it probably is for the better that it's changed our conversation here because it it can only enrich it, I think, having that contingency brought front of mind. I think that, that that's right. And look, the reason that we are doing these two shows, the first one that we did, um, listeners will remember, was about how COVID-19, the experience of social distancing, the experience of also being masked, how what that did to our commitments to civility, our ability to pick up the necessary social cues that, as John Dewey put it, the social cues and daily practices that turn democracy into a moral reality. It's a term I've actually always quite liked, that the, the, the idea that democracy doesn't exist as much in institutions as it does in certain forms of essentially egalitarian 
uh, open-handed interactions with others. Democracy is something that we learn how to do every day in the way that we refuse certain forms of entitlement, uh, certain positions of status or of contempt towards others. Um, with the office, with what with what COVID-19 has done to our experience of the workplace, this is also a really interesting topic for me, Waleed. Um, listeners, again, would remember when we discussed civility. I mean, I'm not the most social person. Um, that's probably putting it mildly. Uh, I can go very, very easily for days not seeing another person. I mean, I love my family very, very much. But if I just had my family and nobody else in the world, I would be a very, very happy person for at least a little period of time. I keep telling myself that I'm not misanthropic because I don't wish ill on other people. But I do, to be perfectly frank, wish that most people just left me the hell alone. That That is, for the most part, my kind of my resting pulse. But when I, I when I think about the experience of the last year in terms of the work that I do, and I, I realize that it's a weird form of work. I mean, you and I do this show. Most of the rest of my work is spent engaging with people's written articles, soliciting uh, uh, written pieces and op-eds for uh, ABC Religion Ethics. I work very, very, very closely, very deeply with people's kind of written material. And I love interacting with people by working with their written words. And I, I guess part of my experience of work is that being in at work is, to be perfectly frank, my least productive time because you've got the rituals of sociability. You've got the inevitable interruptions of other people standing near your desk. I usually put in headphones so I don't have to listen to inane mindless chatter. At what point <laughs> at what point am I obliged to take the headphones out and pretend like I'm actually engaging with what other people are saying? So there, there are all these forms of, of, of ritualized sociability that goes into ordinary workplace practices that I actually find, I mean, to be perfectly frank, they are distractions from and barriers to the work that the ABC pays me to do and the work that I feel a, a kind of deep vocation to do. This is the exact that, opposite of what you should be saying. Yeah, I, I know it is. By, and that's by, why by you should be saying, I don't mean that I'm attaching a moral judgment to that. I just mean it's the opposite of what Scott Stevens is normally about. It is. This is the distinction between the normative and the practical. I, I know that I, that certain things are good and certain things are good for me, and certain things are good for others. To be perfectly frank, I just don't like them very much. The, yeah, which probably increases the imperative to do them, right? Yeah, that's true. Because you're talking as though you are a unit of production, and all of these other things that hang off office life get in the way of your productivity. That's the way you're talking. It is to some extent the way that I'm talking. I'm not meaning to say that all work is, is productivity and that my value as a worker is the efficiency with which and through which I proceed through my tasks. It's more the idea, and, and, and I've been reflecting on this quite a lot lately because I don't just want to be indulgent. I don't want to spend the show justifying my own sort of uh, unusual asocial habits or dispositions. But I, I think one of the things that we often assume even these days, and especially if you think about the invention of certain forms of, te of technology that give your bosses the ability to uh, discover or to monitor the number of times that you depart from your computer or when you're not in front of your computer, even if you mightn't be on, say, a Zoom meeting or something else, there, there is this fear, isn't there? And this is one of the rationales for the workplace, for the office. There is this fear, is there not, that if you're not at work, then you're not being productive. You're not actually doing your job. And I think it seems to me that one of the things that we've discovered, or that I've discovered certainly over the last year, is that there's another phenomenon, not so much absenteeism, whereas if you're not at work, then you're not doing your job. There is actually such a thing called presenteeism, which is the presumption that if you are at work, you are doing your job. Right. And I, I for, for certain types of, especially intellectual or humanities-based or artistic labor, solitude, sequential moments of being able to be present with a book or with material without all of the countervailing distractions or stresses or demands to take you away from what I would like to call the heart of the work, what is essential to the work, whether it be in university life or in many forms of artistic or writing life. These are, you know, presenteeism is actually this great myth that oftentimes you are best at your job when you are least distracted by other people. Now, 
That's one point. The other point, though, and this is where I really do exercise myself a lot. This is where I haven't got a clean conscience in the way that I work. There are forms of obligation that attend to the workplace, that attend to work environments, that go far beyond one's productivity, that go far beyond the job that you are expected to, or even the job that in a high sense of vocation you feel that you are called to. And that is the ability to be interrupted by, to be able to be used by, and to make oneself vulnerable to the needs, the demands, the longings for recognition on the part of others. And I think that's where we really need, I think, to be really honest in the way that we think about, in the way that we describe the workplace, in the way that we try to measure what genuine collegiality and genuine productivity might mean. And so I think, you know, if, if we reflect on the last year, I think we've seen certain forms of productivity open up to us that just because you're not at work doesn't mean you're not doing your work. But I think we've also seen certain horizons open up that give us the opportunity to rethink, to reimagine the moral obligations that attend to us when we make ourselves vulnerable to others. I think that's both to our colleagues, but also to those businesses, for instance, that have sprung up, that have opened up, that have come into existence precisely to cater for those who have to travel into the city and do, quote unquote, office work. So I think both of these things, the way that we think about work, but also the way that we think about the way that we conceptualize our moral obligations to, to those that don't necessarily have directly to do with our productivity. I think both really are live issues for me. Yeah. Has the past year, it's tricky. How much have you worked from home actually? How much have I? Yeah. Uh, apart from coming into the ABC to do this show entirely. So, right. So this is the only time you come in. Yep. Okay. So has it changed what you think work is? Uh, no, it has, it has revealed to me the ideal conditions under which I work, which is being disturbed by as few people as possible and being available to my books as much as humanly possible. Okay. So that's not how you work. I know. No, not really. I, I need the engagement with someone else to realize we're, we're odd, I guess, aren't we? In that we both work in the realm broad, very broadly and loosely defined, um, in the realm of ideas. Yeah. And for me, they're best realized by talking to other people because then that things pop into my head or um, ideas that I might have had in a, might have had in an inchoate form sort of get sharpened and made concrete. And so uh, that's how I work. But then I do need the moment where I'm away from everybody else and I sort of focus. But th I think that's true of a lot of kinds of work. I guess what I'm saying, like, I have seen the depth of what is missed by people not being in a workplace together. Hmm. I've experienced that and I get that you might like your books and I think that's important and I think there should be moments for that. But I do think it's really important to register what cannot be substituted here, that we're not talking about mere functionality, the difference is between doing X here and X over there, right? Between doing X in an office and X at home, it's that X changes mm -hmm. as a result. That's true. X that is, is true. enriched or X becomes not the whole point, right? X leads to X dash or I'm going to ditch the algebraic formulations because <laughs> it's not helping. <laughs> but, you, know, you, you come up with new ideas. You, you attend to all kinds of incidental matters you might not otherwise have attended to. There's a kind of creativity in a creative space. I think you referred to collegiality. It's that, but it's, it's also more than that that's there. I think one of the great problems in the lead up to COVID was this sort of cult of substitutability, you know, and I think we've seen a lot of that in, in tertiary education, for example. Well, you can access a lecture by hearing it recorded or yeah, whatever, yeah. right? No, I think it's time to stand up for the unique and irreplaceable character of, of in-person interaction, even if it comes with certain downsides. Yes. And I'm just surprised I'm not hearing more of that from you. Okay. Look, this is wonderful, Waleed. I mean, we are in complete, well. Are we in we're agreement? Almost, like we're, we're almost, no, no, we're almost in complete agreement. I think the last year has, has boosted the techno-optimists. 
that pretty much everything that we want to do, we can basically do online. And therefore, there are certain physical things and there are forms of physical contact that can be almost entirely obviated. All right. I think you're absolutely right. Meetings in person versus meetings online are two entirely different things. There are forms of body language. There are forms of pathos. There are forms of persuasion. There are kinds of frisson that emerge when you are in the physical presence of others. And, and I think there are outcomes that emerge when you are in the physical presence of others that aren't there through the mediation of a screen. I am with you completely about the unsubstitutability of the university lecture. I think there is something about the task of persuasion and interaction that takes place in that common physical space that simply cannot be replicated online. I'm with you completely with that. I guess the problem, especially with what we do when it comes to, if you like, the work of ideas, is that working with other people, especially in that kind of collegial or collaborative way, where the thing that you are producing is something that you have to produce together. The presence of other people rush you, it seems to me, or rushes me anyway. It rushes me to a conclusion before I'm ready to get there. What lingering with something, what tarrying with inexpressibility or inarticulacy for a period of time, not knowing quite what I think, not knowing what I'm trying to say, not knowing what I think about this thing that's just happened, not knowing how to intervene in a particular debate. I need to be able to sit with that, to be perfectly frank, for a long time. And that long time is characterized by inexpressibility, by inarticulacy, where if I try to give voice to it beforehand, it's going to come out trite. It's going to come out half-baked, and it's simply going to reproduce what everybody is already saying. You should talk to your anyway. colleagues more, Scott. You might find an articulation. No, no. Well, sometimes, but only when I've reached the point where I think I can say something that may well be intelligible. And then, and then you're right. I mean, this is what you've just described. That's what I feel that we do on this show. I mean, there's a soul labor, I find, that goes into the preparation for our conversations. And then when we're in the moment... Everything always comes out in a way that I didn't always expect. And we end our conversations almost always in a way that I couldn't have imagined. So I think it seems to me that one of the things we need to do with our work environments is to create opportunities for what looks on the outside like non-productivity, like inarticulacy, but may well be the conditions that allow for richer forms of collaboration. Let me just make one other point, though, Willie. I'm really interested to hear where you want to go with this. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm all for people being able to work at home more. I think forms of collaboration and sociality are indispensable. I think the particular disposition of the person maybe needs to be catered for a bit more. What I do think we always need to find, however, I mean, I think about those businesses, for instance, that are suffering, having taken root in the city in order to cater for office workers and now find themselves destitute because the number of office workers has dropped off a cliff and may well never come back to the previous levels. I mean, there was a proposal uh, from, what was it, two and a half, three months ago from Deutsche Bank, that those who take upon themselves the luxury of working from home ought to essentially pay a 5% tax mm. in order to support those businesses that continue to exist in the city, knowing that they've got a lower number of customers frequenting their stores. That, for me, is the kind of thing. I don't think that's a substitute for sociality and for sociability, but I do think that it's one of those ways that those who do feel they need to retain the conditions of working from home and not working as much from the office, that's one of the ways that they keep themselves stitched into the body politic. They keep themselves stitched into that broader network of commitments and can't simply exempt themselves from it altogether. It's interesting. Yeah. I have a very complicated response to that suggestion. I'm not going to articulate it because it's a different show, I think. But I think the thread you've pulled on is a really important and relevant one for our discussion today. So I'm glad you've raised it. I will advance it no further, partly because I think we have a guest who will do it much better than I would anyway. Uh, this is The Mindfield. You can listen to the show on RN. You may be doing that right now, but you can catch the podcast anytime on the ABC Listen app, or you can follow The Mindfield on your podcast platform of choice and find us there.
Scott, tell us about our guest. Our guest, he's one of the great friends of this show. He's one of our favorites. He's one of my favorite authors. I, I know that he's one of Wallade's as well. Gideon Haig is a indescribable <laughs> independent journalist and author. He's the author of over 40 books. His most recent is, it seems to me, a minor masterpiece. It's called The Momentous, Uneventful Day, A Requiem for the Office. Gideon, thanks so much for joining us once again on The Minefield. It's nice to be here. The Apologies last. for Scott's use of the word minor there, Gideon. I think that was really demanding so efforts. I just mean length by, oh, by okay. minor. I don't mean sort of on the lower order of the masterpieces that currently exist. Okay, well, it was a um, short book. It's partly because it was um, a creation of lockdown. You know, there was, a, there was a period last year in Melbourne where there wasn't an awful lot to do. <laughs> Otherwise, I'd be spending the time staring out the window. So I thought, you know, how do I fill a, this time gainfully? I'll write a book about it. Uh, let me just pick up on that very point, Gideon. How did you feel about your own levels of productivity over the last year? I mean, from what I understand, you aren't someone who has to go into the office as a matter of course or as a precondition of your job. You do write, quote unquote, independently. Would I be wrong in thinking that the last year has been a kind of writer's dream? No, 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 not at all. I mean, you would have thought so in an abstract sense. I mean, I've been working from home for 25, 26 years. I'm very used to my own company. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty productive uh, and I, I know how to allocate my time efficiently. And I would have expected, in fact, that I would have thrived under the circumstances you're describing. But I very quickly grew to resent them quite a lot because it's very different when your own company is uh, voluntary as distinct from when it's mandatory and when there was sort of no variety in my working life that um, that every day was spent at the same desk looking at the same screen in the same locale over the same hours uh, it became it began to seem pretty relentless and, and inescapable you need the outside inspiration don't you this is kind of the point I'm making um, is it outside inspiration or is it differentiation, Waleed? Well, uh, Gideon's talking there about differentiation, or at least differentiation is implicit in what he says, but it's, I think it's more than that. Like, I, I don't think you can – let's take the example of a writer. You could have a musician as well, whatever. I don't think a musician or a writer or anyone doing anything that requires creative output can do that in any meaningful way in isolation just doesn't doesn't work. And if we are going to say that creativity or you know creative elements exist in just about any job, then it seems to me that no job is enhanced by that isolation. There you go. I've gone further than I expected I would, but I've put it on the table so that we can launch into a discussion on that, that aspect of it. What do you think, Gideon? Well, I'd call myself a journalist rather than a writer, um, lowercase j, as distinct from uppercase w. <laughs> and one of the things that's always appealed about, um, about being a journalist is the variety of your days. Uh, the fact some days are spent writing, some days are spent researching, some days are spent talking, some days are spent travelling, some days are spent in, uh, in contemplation, some days are spent in, um, in you know, dynamic action. So... Uh, all of a sudden, uh, I was allowed a, um, uh, a lot of one very specific uh, part of my work, but, but none of the others. Uh, so it began to seem very monotonous and one, one day very much like another. I love that you've written a requiem for the office when you never really had one, at least not in the sense that a lot of other people <laughs> Perhaps did. that's why I feel nostalgic about it. I mean, I have worked in offices. I've worked in offices for 11 years at the start of my career in journalism and, and loved them very much. I think I got – it was a very good office period. I'm not sure the office is, um, is, quite, as, uh, is quite as welcoming an environment as, as it used to be. But I did love the collegiality of journalism. I did love uh, the idea of uh, uh, accumulative enterprise – I did love the idea of many people drawing together um, a, a daily journal of, um, of, of the events of the day, and I miss that uh, in, in some respects. Not quite so much perhaps now when I talk to journalists about the modern-day reality of the office, which is far more relentless, uh, far more um, uh, repetitive, uh, and 
I think, I think far more formulaic. See, this is this is interesting. I mean, you talk about the romance of the office, and Ooh. I do I, I do use the term romance advisedly on a whole lot of fronts. You know. I mean, some of my favorite films, my children's favorite show, I mean, my, my kids love the U.S. version of The Office. I, I haven't quite been able to lure them over to the BBC. I, I don't think I'd quite want to lure them over to the BBC version, which seems to me is far more accurate on just about every level. But there is something about the excitement of The Office where the tedium of the conditions and the relatively interesting nature and I use interesting there in Ralph Waldo Emerson's sense, but, you know, the relatively interesting nature of the people that are thrown into this common space, it creates, it's meant, this romantic idea is meant to create the conditions within which people who don't belong together are together and discover something almost spiritually enlivening. Uh, um, there's this sort of, there's this rubbing off on one another that creates forms of relationality, of solidarity, of collegiality that wouldn't have existed otherwise. And as that language of relationality, solidarity, collegiality began to diminish, it seems to me that what so often then grew up in its place, at least certainly in our cultural imaginary, was it's not really friendship that gets you excited at the office. It's not really sociality that gets you excited at the office. It's the prospect of romance that gets you excited at the yeah. office. And that yeah. then opens up, I mean, do I really need to describe some of the problems that that's opened up over the last few decades? Well, that's always happened, of course. It's been an inseparable part of office life uh, for at least 100 years when, uh, you know, and one of the major revolutions in the social sphere is the throwing together of men and women in, in a work environment. The office was the first environment where that really happened. Previously, work had been pretty rigorously gender-typed, uh, you know, in the, on the farm, the man toiled in the fields and the woman tended the hearth. In the factory, uh, you know, women worked in textiles and men worked in iron or, you know, material manufacturers like that. When, the, uh, when women were introduced to the office space, it's around about the end of the 19th century, but continues through the first couple of decades of the 20th century, all of a sudden... It was one of the first places where men and women worked alongside each other in a situation where they were you know, within touching distance without their um, interactions being socially policed. And uh, there was well, the opportunity to, uh, to, to work in that proximity had all sorts of entailments. And I think that's been particularly so since the, since the 1980s where people began to spend longer at work and we tended to marry later and I think that the primacy of the nuclear family began to fade. You know, office romances became, you know, genuine office relationships. Uh, there was more cooperation and interaction, a greater overlap between our work and our social skills. And the other thing is, that's, that's an interesting point you make there, Scott. You know, we might feel bad at work every now and again. You know, we're bored or indifferent or distracted, but we usually look good. You know, we're smart, we're <laughs> wanted, we're purposeful, we're directed, we're our, we're our best selves in a way. So, uh, it, and there is, a, as you say, a, a performative aspect to work, which um, it was very nicely noted by, um, by an English writer, Lucy Kellaway from the Financial Times last year. Lucy Kellaway was the uh, management writer for, for the FT for, for 25 years. And, and she, um, about five years ago, she left that job and began to work from home. And she was brought back last year during the pandemic to describe, you know, what might go by the board if, if office life was to, uh, was to become um, a, uh, an adjunct to the home. And she talked about the biggest change that she experienced when she began to work from home was that rather than getting ready, going to work, putting on her you know, work attire and assuming her kind of professional persona, um, there was something very pleasurable about that that she missed. And all of a sudden, when she was working at home, she was the same person everywhere. And it was boring. Mm. And so you did see people doing that, right, by getting dressed. And so I think, did I even hear in a, certain cases, people coming up with some kind of weird version of a commute before <laughs> they started working at home in order to sort of enact that ritual? But maybe... Is that also on the flip side the thing that makes working from home attractive? 
is that it allows people to cease performing and just do their job. Like performing itself, there's a kind of, it can be fun, but it can also be um, quite depressing and humiliating. You know, you can be forcing yourself to behave in a certain way that just isn't really you. There's a certain inauthenticity to it, um, at least for some people in some cases. I, like, I wonder if that's the attraction that a lot of people feel to not going back. Who's to say that that's our true selves, that we're our true selves at home and we're our phony selves at work? We're just different versions of the, of the same self. And there's a pleasure in that variety, I think. Yeah, sure, the rituals of you know, dressing for presentation of the, of the office can be ridiculous. But I think it was Irving, Irving Goffman, in, uh, the, the American sociologist, who talked about the performative quality to work. It's not inauthentic, and it's sometimes quite pleasurable to have a work persona, a version of ourselves that we play that might actually be more earnest and more capable than we otherwise feel. Mm, I'm trying to think about Isn't the inauthenticity that, question. Isn't that interesting, though? Sorry, I, I, I love that because, and this against, again goes against all of my kind of underlying moral predilections. But, you know, uh, Sherry Turkle is a, a kind of, is this great, she's become a kind of technology critic. She has a background in political philosophy and psychotherapy from memory. She did this wonderful book a few years ago called, called Reclaiming Conversation. And she was worried by the fact, uh, she teaches at MIT, she was worried by the fact that so many of her students quite simply flat out refused to meet her in her office, to come and be in her presence and to have serious discussions about their postgraduate work or about their progress through a particular uh, assignment, and uh, they preferred almost invariably to engage with her by email or by text message or whatever. They never picked up their phones. They always texted back. There was there was never that moment of, if you like, in-present accountability uh, where you could really inquire into one another. And she developed the idea, the hypothesis, that what that represented was an underlying fear of being found out about their underlying fraudulence being uncovered and the desire always to present a kind of manicured, cultivated appearance of themselves, their best possible version. And they only felt that they could do that through the digital medium. What you're saying, Gideon, is kind of the opposite to that, but a really interesting opposite to that, that yes, there is something to some extent confected. There is something manicured about the way that we present ourselves at work. But what that does by making ourselves vulnerable to one another in real time, that creates the conditions in which there can be a kind of deeper authenticity than the more slovenly forms of authenticity that we might be able to engage in when the stakes are not quite so high. I guess, I, I guess also one of the things that, um, that, uh, you caused me to think about in your um, in your opening uh, dialogue was that we're we're generalising from the point of view of liking our work. You know, the three of us we always we draw enormous amount of stimulation from our work. There's always a gen danger in these discussions of generalising from our own experience. There's a lot of office work that's really obnoxious, <laughs> that's really torrid and and difficult and boring and mundane. And actually, it's the it's the incidental pleasures. It's the, the interaction that's not involved in work that actually makes this bearable for, for a lot of people. And actually, if you're, um, if you're only doing that work remotely, then you're cut off from those uh, consolations. We, we haven't yet mentioned those who are significantly, uh, I was going to say advantaged, that might be the, word, the wrong word, maybe enabled is the right word, by a working from home revolution if it were to transpire. So... I'm thinking here about, say, especially parents of young kids, and that would typically be women as it tends to play out across workplaces, but who, for whom the flexibility of being able to work remotely makes a very big difference to the kinds of work they can do or the seniority of positions they could hold or whatever. Um, people with disabilities for whom access might be an issue if workplaces aren't designed with them in mind and so on. I mean, is there... Is there a place for those sorts of considerations that can be factored into the analysis you're offering here? Yeah, look, I, one, of the, one of the things, well, what's made me curious about, um, about the last year is that we adapted to this new regime with such 
relative ease. You know, a year ago, it would have seemed like an incredibly convulsive change, wouldn't it? Yeah. That, that so many of us would be working in a, in a, in a domestic um, environment. And that, that's one of the provocations for this book. You know, why did we make this adaptation so easily? And why haven't we made it before? I guess there's, there's a variety of reasons for that. I, I think that you know, whatever the inconveniences involved, remote work was better than unsafe work, and it was certainly better than no work. Uh, I think there was a degree of novelty about remote work, and uh, it introduced a variety to routines that we knew from experience can be a bit dull at times, a bit repetitive. Well, we might have missed our direct interaction, but nobody missed their commute that we discussed before. Some did, actually. Can I say? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've spoken to a lot of people who've, uh, who've felt exactly the same way since this book came out, that they actually missed that idea of, um, of there being uh, separate spheres and there being some sort of mediating environment where yeah. you kind of got ready for uh, you left behind your domestic self and became your professional it's self. Kind of a transition space that you could also populate with things that interested you, whether it was listening to podcasts or whatever it might be. But there, there is a kind of solitude or private time, or there's a there's a special characteristic to hmm. that time that you spend commuting hmm. that isn't replicated by anything else. Actually, I can't I think of any other mode of human existence that quite does the same thing. It's not just the commute to work, it's the commute to home. It's the idea of being re-welcomed into oh, yeah. That's the more important commute, I think. Yeah. But, I mean, I think one of the reasons why we're always, we're, we're always going to be dissatisfied with offices and office work is that it is the great design challenge of all time. This reconciliation of supervision and freedom, of, of collaboration and concentration, you know, whatever the design we come up with for our offices, it's always going to alienate a certain proportion of people because people are different and they work in different ways. So I think, but my fear, the, the fear that, that grew up inside me last year was that because this working from home was presented in such a benign guise, you know, flexibility, opportunity, um, security, that we that we embraced it without really thinking through its 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 full suite of consequences. We felt better in the company of our loved ones, and we um, work accommodated that, so it presented it to us with a relatively benevolent face. But I think one of the another of the reasons is that probably for the last fifty years, office layout has been designed to pack more people into the floor plate under the guise of collaboration. With this, with you know, hot desking being the kind of reductio ad absurdum, where where no space is permanent, which kind of enacts, I think, the modern status of labour, where everything about work is temporary and and transactional and 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 insecure. And suddenly, last year, workers regained a measure of the privacy that people had previously foregone, and it suddenly it felt good. You know, we regained control over our space, e even if it required us to bring our own space to work. Mm. At the same time as we lost control of other things. I want to pick that up, actually. It's mm. a really interesting area to explore. Um, if you have just joined us, that is the erudition of uh, Gideon Haig, who's the author of a new book called The Momentous Uneventful Day, A Requiem for the Office. Uh, I would read all the books he's written, but we do not have time left in the show for me to get through them. Um, Waleed Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. So Gideon, that last point that you made there was that it felt good to kind of reclaim some of that privacy, right? Can you, I want you to expand on that because I think there are buttons to press within that. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's been steadily eroded over the last generation without us realising, you know, we're like the, the classic Boiled frog, aren't we? You know, they, they keep turning up the heat, and, and we keep adapting to it until we realise that you know that the environment's um, intolerable. It's funny also that you were talking about um, Scott was talking earlier on about um, the distraction of other people in the uh, in in the workplace. I actually find technology much much more yes. distraction than people, and I I fear that we've actually been sort of retro engineered to uh, to fit in with our tools. These days, we very seldom get the opportunity to work on a single task at work. We're always juggling multiple tasks. We're like the, the, the multiple screens that you drape across your computer. 
And technology offers us the illusion of achievement. It offers various low-hanging fruit that, that we can pluck. So it feels like we're getting the job done, whereas in fact we're, you know, we're like rats on a, on a, on a wheel. And this delivers me perfectly to the element I wanted to explore. And Scott, sorry, I didn't mean to jump in, but I wonder, I reckon you might be interested in this too, Scott. And yeah. that is, at the same time as you can construct working from home as reclaiming privacy and that sort of thing, maybe removing yourself from distraction, the technological thing you identify there, Gideon, but even the blurring of space between that which is work and that which is private it seems to me that's a harbinger of the colonization of your private life, right? The colonization of life with work, that work must dominate everything because it has no barrier. There, yes. there is no place where it happens. Uh, there is like, there are no confines to it anymore. And as a result of that, that seems that that's a recipe for misery. It seems to me, it's not, a, there's no, it's not a liberation in that. You're not freed from work by working from home. Actually, you're conscripted into a perpetual work as a result of that, and especially once you add the role of technology. Yes, yes. Um, Jeffrey Polzer from Harvard Business School asked the question, you know, at what point did working from home become living at work? Mm. Do you have an answer? I think the privacy that we might feel that we've regained in the short term, I think is going to become quite hard to preserve. You know, it, there was an interesting rise last year in the use of um, of employee monitoring software for uh, for workers working from home. There are, there are things called you know, Time Doctor and Active Track and Staff Cop, which uh, which allow you to monitor, log in, and measure keystrokes and capture screenshots. So I you know, I wondered you know how long before work became uh, illimitable. And we all we all you know. Work has always had a tendency, hasn't it, to, uh, to to work its way into the into the household's diurnal course. You know, everyone is familiar with the idea of you know taking a work call at home or answering an email on the on the couch. Your children probably recognise that faraway look in your eye when you get an untimely text or or an email on a, on a work related subject. But I suspect that they'd have to become even more used to that. If the boundaries were uh, were further corroded, at least where work was principally taking place in in another location, you could, in theory, close the door behind you and and leave it behind. There was a psychological as, as well as a physical barrier, wasn't there? Mm. Look, I I think that's a that's a vital point, and I do think the idea of work colonizing homes, such that it is kind of ever present, it's sort of always bubbling just beneath the surface. I mean, that's something that that worries me deeply, uh, only to the extent, however, that work becomes increasingly a matter of the transactional relationship between the employer and the employee. I'm with you completely about the, the barbarism of hot desking. I think there's something about that that has a devastating psychological effect uh, on the worker, him or herself. At the same time, however, one of the things that can't help but uh, but increase the heighten or exacerbate the feelings of mutual suspicion or even of social alienation from others uh, is the problem of having an office at work. I mean, one of my favorite parts of your book uh, is some of the the overt reflections on the ridiculous rituals, the internal trauma, the soul anguish. Uh, that goes on with having an office but not knowing quite where to have the desk, whether to have the door open or closed, whether to have the desk facing the open door or not. Uh, I think, you know, being in collaborative, being in in sociable spaces, I think that's a really wonderful thing. But I think, uh, I guess the problem that underlies all this, however, is the diminution of our sense of work being a vocation, being something that one doesn't simply do, but in a very real, in a morally defensible sense, something that one in fact lives. And I realize, of course, that there's certain form, forms of work that lend themselves better to that sense of vocation than others. But I do know that most forms of work can have that sense of vocation, of solidarity, of some kind of underlying telos that binds us all together in some shared project of excellence and mutual ownership. Most forms of work can, in fact, have that. And there are certain forms of, if you like, of both physical plant, but also of alienation and isolation from one another 
that can at the same time reduce any possibility of vocation, of deep mutual investment, of kind of collaborative ownership taking root. So I, uh, I guess I, I don't see any real issue with work spilling over past, if you like, the nine to five bounds. I do have great issue with that happening without a countervailing or accompanying sense of vocation to go along with it. Yes. It's curious. So one of the ironies that I've detected in the, um, in the work from home revolution is that a lot of the companies that have been instrumental in providing the technology that enable people to do their work from home, you know, your, your Facebooks and your Apples and your Googles, they, they have massive offices, absolutely massive offices that are kind of embody their founders' vision and their, and their wealth and their prestige. Now, these are, you know, these are commonplace sensations. And if, if work is the same everywhere, if everything is simply piped up and down or to and fro on the on the internet, if if an organisation can offer no distinctive work experience, how is it meant to build the kind of healthy corporate culture that we're all talking about these days that helps to recruit the best talent, that helps to instil collective goals, that that nurtures you know real identifiable sound values and builds powerful you know world-beating brands. It's curious, isn't it, that, um, you know, how are you going to impress upon people what a company or what a job or what a vocation embodies, how it might suit you uniquely, how it feels to be a part of if you're simply doing it that work at home in your pyjamas? The other irony is uh, the examples that you mentioned is going back to Scott's point about was it the time for inarticulacy, all of that sort of yeah, stuff? Yeah, yeah. Is it, is it not Google that has that 80-20 thing where – its staff, or at least a good portion of its staff, has 20% of its work time just left to itself. Like they can do what they want in that time. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think they spend, you know, dreaming up new ideas and coming up with new products, whereas Scott would just spend it in a corner quivering away trying to figure exactly. out a formal sentence. Anybody who's read David Egger's wonderful novel, The Circle, knows that that time, that 20% time of quiet reflection can very, very easily be technologized and then in turn become a form of obligation whereby one is obligated to share one's insights at regular intervals with others. Look, Gideon, the point that you raised before about the kind of the technology creep, the technologization of everything. I mean, one of the work habits that I had to adopt very, very early on, precisely because of my terror, and I, I really do mean this, it is a terror of a being left in a perpetual state of half-attentiveness kind of always moving across the surfaces of everything, but never having the space, the time, the focus to go deeply into anything. I, I ended up having, I mean, I have a computer for work and I only ever have a limited number of programs open at any yeah. one time. I have a computer for writing and that is disconnected from the internet. Uh, it's the only thing that I mean. The only thing that I'll do on that is is writing. No correspondence. No anything else. And I absolutely refuse to indulge in digital forms of reading. If I'm going to read something, if I'm going to read something deeply, it has to be non-digital, uh, or else I don't really count it as taking place at all. And I just I just wonder whether those forms of siphoning off of creating clear demarcations in in aspects of our life where this really is no screen face-to-face time this really is no screen book time this really is no writing online time this really is no online writing time i wonder if that's going to simply have to become part of our sort of soul preserving individual disciplines look as useful as the tools that we used last year were i still don't think they're very good for uh, for <laughs> For interaction, you know, I, you know, we all became conversant with all the different varieties, didn't we? You know, your Microsoft Teams and your um, and your Google Meets, and we're using Skype at the moment. Make me feel all nostalgic. You know, I haven't used that, <laughs> but I did. For, I actually found them quite stressful. Um, I find anything to do with with technology quite stressful, but but it wasn't it wasn't the same. You know, the the, the sheer efficiency and the economy of direct personal contact is always being undervalued until you try to do without it. You know, electronic communication is not a like-for-like substitute. And I don't think it ever will be. I mean, think about, you know, 
dealing with people in a, in, a, um, in, a, in a Zoom meeting, your eye contact is much more volatile than it is in face-to-face -face -face contact. You've got this cropped, blurred, oversized head much, much closer to you than you'd normally allow. Your, your exchanges are plagued by time delay. There always seems to be you know, a few seconds between the, the, the completion of a sentence and, the, and, the, and the, the commencement of the next. And it's bogged in turns. You, know, you have to wait your turn. You have to wait for, for other people to stop. There's no interjecting. You're chained to the chair. You can't move. It's physically quite uncomfortable. You lose all the kind of nonverbal cues that I think are a sizable proportion of how we convey meaning to, to one another. You lose all those, those those sotto voce asides and interjections that kind of introduce a level of ease to the to the awkwardness and tension that's inherent in, in meetings. And I think the other thing is that you've got no existence beyond the subject of of your encounter. You, know, you, do, you, you have the meeting, you set the task, and at the end of it, you turn off the meeting and you're left in sort of solitary silence. I actually found that kind of interaction really quite stressful last year. Um, and as a result, I think I communicated less than I would mm. in, in the normal run of events because um, and my interactions are more superficial and, and more inconclusive. Uh, so I, I actually think that last year we did a lot of work that was simply about keeping the joint going just the minimums of work. You know, unless it was absolutely unavoidable, no one undertook a major strategic change project. That was completely off the agenda. We did enough to keep it going. We weren't doing the work that we would normally do in the, in the run of events. Um, and we fooled ourselves into thinking that we were getting the job done, but we were really just keeping the lights on. I love this. Scott, have you turned around? Are you happy with the office now? Are you going to rush back in with greater enthusiasm and purpose? Mm, well... You know, uh, you're a lost cause. <laughs> no, no, but but I do think this has been both a timely and a reprimanding reminder of <laughs> of the nature and the importance of these interactions beyond whatever one's personal preference might be. I do think as things begin to open back up, and those who who are expressing their reticence, as I do, about going quote unquote back to the office. I think there's far more at play. There's far more at stake than maybe our simple tastes or our levels of convenience. Gideon, thank you for joining us today. I, a, an episode that reprimands Scott is my favourite genre episode. So I've lent on you to do that and you've delivered in spades. Thank you. It's really interesting being on the show. Really enjoy it. Um, Gideon Haig is an author and journalist. His latest book, uh, which is the basis of our discussion today, The Momentous Uneventful Day, A Requiem for the Office, a magnificent title apart from anything else, by the way. I think that needs to be acknowledged. Um, our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield, Scott, thank you very much. I'll see you in at work next week. <laughs> um, and dear listener, we'll see you next week as well. Have a good one. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.